welfare, the noun. The good fortune, health, happiness, prosperity, etc., of a person, group, or organization. Well-being. Mr. Welfare will take listeners through Mr. Gandhi's observations and concerns with today's world, discussing the social impact of culture, health, and love, promoting unity and creating a movement. Good afternoon. I am Mr. Welfare, and today's guest is Selassie Adika. Atadika. Atadika, yes. because it's me. <laughs> um, how are you this afternoon? I'm great, thanks. And you? Um, I'm great. I'm, it's like a joy to like finally have you on the show. Um, you're glowing. You look fabulous, <laughs> as you. always. You've got you. You wear these. We're gonna get to the interview, but I gotta talk about. <laughs> you always have these eccentric African pieces on that are couture, and I've now I've seen this is like this an accessories piece. Yeah. Um, I was watching you on Inside Africa. And there was another piece, and we had like an African cape on the back of like <laughs> a striped J. Cruz. I was like, "Where is she pulling all of this?" So. I I just I try to find um, designers that are sort of aligned with my thinking. So it's sort of you want you have a mix of contemporary and traditional, and so I think a lot of the pieces I want them to kind of go anywhere. Mm-hmm. They can be in any part of the world, but there's definitely something that says contemporary Africa. Um, within that with that so it's not just yeah. about nomadic experience it also comes with the clothing yeah which I love. <laughs> um so i'm happy that you're here i have been reading about you reading your press because you know i'm obsessed with your chocolates Thank like you. that's my thing um how we met was about two years ago yeah. or a year and about two. two years ago we were at stanley lomax's mm-hmm. and we were introduced through colin appia yes correct and then we left there and went back to colin's house for cocktails mm-hmm. And we had this moment in the back seat. I don't know how, but it was like this very moment where it was just kind of you and I. Yeah. And I think Colin was driving. Yes. Um, and that was like our connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and fast forward, here we are. And you have the chocolatier company by the name of... Mindanoo Chocolates. Mindanoo Chocolates. Yes. And Mindanoo Chocolates is also a nomadic experience where you have pop-up dining. So the parent company is, is Midunu. So that's kind of our savory space. Um, we do do a pop-up um, and we do different types of events, private the dining as well as sort of the nomadic um, pop-ups that we do. Um, and then we've got the chocolate, um, which is Midunu Chocolates. And that is focused on, I mean, the whole company is focused on how do we celebrate and preserve Africa's culinary heritage. And the chocolates, cocoa is one of the, the big products that we have in Ghana, but everyone seems to make chocolate from the cocoa from Ghana, but you don't see very often chocolate from Ghana. And so it was about adding value to a local ingredient. Um, in terms of Africa and moving forward, I believe that until we won't be able to make it through the situation we're currently in until we're able to finish and put added value on our raw products and so with me the cocoa was something that it was like how do we make sure we transform it and say it's chocolate from Ghana Mm. um, rather than the cocoa from Ghana and so um, the flavors that I I use are um, flavors I've picked up throughout the continent I did a lot of traveling and eating before I moved back to Ghana and um, I really try to infuse each truffle with something that reminds me of a woman or an experience I've had um, throughout the continent. So because that experience to be coming through, 
come that experience that you had could be coming from one of 43 nations because you've been to 43 out of the 54 something correct like, yeah. something yeah. like something that. like that a lot, as, as we a push lot. The yeah. okay. <laughs> um, that is like a step like i've never ever heard that before yeah um and this is all taking place in your family's home or your space in Ghana, correct? Yes, we Did have a space. Um, I was born in Ghana, um, moved to the U.S. when I was about seven years old. Mm-hmm. And um, I ended up working for the United Nations. And you didn't just move to the U.S., let's be very clear. You moved to Westchester. Yes, Westchester. Which, which, is, <laughs> which is, you know, that's, you know. Trying to call me out? <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's a beautiful thing. You don't smell like cash, but you look like it. Um, so you arrived to Westchester. Yeah, we, went, we moved to Westchester. Mm-hmm. And um, I think one of the reasons why we moved to Westchester, my parents had always felt that the most important thing that they could give us, um, my siblings and I, was education. And so um, they actually scoured and tried to find the one of the best schools that they could afford. You know, they couldn't send us a private school, so it was like, okay, we're going to get the best public schools, that's right. and that's what we're going to do, and that's what we can give you, and that's our gift to you as our children. Um, and after that, you can make a life for yourself with that education. So um, that's why we ended up in Westchester. And um, from there, I, let's see. Graduated, I went to school at... I went to Dartmouth for my undergraduate degree, and then I um, eventually started uh, doing an internship with the UN um, in Nairobi. Mm-hmm. And um, this is because your father was like, you ain't, you're not Well, I mean, right? I, I initially, uh, when I graduated, I was thinking to do something around Peace Corps. Um, I wanted something, I, I, I'd always be kind of, have been obsessed a little bit with um, because my family, when we came over, I kind of felt like we had a certain level of privilege and I wanted to be able to give that back and wanted to contribute to sort of um, improving conditions for people in Africa. And so initially I, I was thinking about Peace Corps. Um, at the end, I ended up um, doing uh, work for the UN. I was volunteering uh, initially, but then my first um, position that I was posted to was actually in Kosovo. Wow. Um, and Kosovo can be kind of cold. <laughs> yeah. And there are some challenges. But after that, I really realized that I wanted to spend more time in Africa. I ended up doing a master's in international affairs, focusing on international security policy. Take that. Wow. And um, from there, I started doing work with um, children that had been uh, associated with armed forces and groups. Now, all the while you're doing all of this. I'm eating a lot of food. You're eating a lot of food, but you're also cooking. You're still like like, in that kitchen, I would say that when we moved to the U.S. with my family, um, food, Ghanaian food, was always a major part of how we connected and we maintained our culture and our heritage. Mm. So food had always been important to me because that was one of these big convening things. Uh, The name of my company is Midunu, which is coming from the Evan language, um, which you... Here um, in the eastern part of Ghana, and a little bit also going into Togo, and um, it's it means um, come, let's eat. And so, when we were growing up in Westchester, whenever my dad came home, you know, he would say "vamidunu," which you know was would gather us all together for the table, and that's when we would sit down as a family and eat. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, that was one of the things I carried with me. Um, and I also noticed that, regardless of the situation we were in, people always shared. Um, food, um, whether they had a lot, whether they didn't have, have a, a lot, yeah, it right. was just like you don't eat alone. 
Um, and that was just one of the things that I really wanted to carry forward. But um, yeah, as I traveled, I ate a lot. I got to see and meet a lot of people and talk to them about their different stories and uh, understand where our food was coming from, as well as some of the challenges. Um, some of the work I was doing had to do um, with you know, support to um, nutrition crises and um, food security issues. So that also allowed me to see the not having as well at the same time. So it was kind of putting these two things together. Um, and looking at my food philosophy, it really became sort of what are the lessons that I've learned from the African kitchen, um, looking at communal dining, which is not only about sharing and hospitality, it also teaches you how to eat, um, right. you know, in terms of having good eating habits um, and not overeating or undereating. You know, you, there's, a, there's a way that you eat communally. Looking at uh, no low waste, we pretty much use most parts of the animal. Um, or fruits or vegetables and things that we have. So there's very little waste. So, for example, West, um, well, Sub-Saharan Africa has um, our problem or our challenges are in post-harvest loss, not in post-consumer loss. So in terms of lessons we can share with the rest of the world, we're not wasting food after it's been purchased. Right. Right. So the the waste is actually um, uh, from the field to the market. Understood. So um, those are some of the things that I I got to see and I try to express in the way that I cook and my approach to cooking. Um, Also understanding climate change and being able to look for ingredients that will do well in the years to come um, has been part of what I do when I kind of think about my philosophy and, and what I put on the, on the table. And you were creating this philosophy while you were working at the United Nations um, as you traveled. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's come to me. I've had more time to focus on it. I have taken notes and sort of seen and um, um, experienced it. And I think in the last few years, it's become very, very crystal clear to me what the lessons are that, one, I think as Africans, we need to keep and not move away from. Um, but also as Africans, we should share with the rest of the world because these are things that, you know, I think can help us as the global community think about how we eat. That's right. How are you, well, what I know for sure is that I get a call from you <laughs> and you say, I am back. Yeah. You know, I know that you go back and forth from Ghana. Mm-hmm. You're, you're really a one woman show. You're doing this on your own, which I, I just think it's fascinating and I'm excited to see where you go because of course I think that you should be doing a documentary running through cocoa fields, <laughs> um, you know, and have the very first, maybe the, the first chocolate tea, black woman chocolatier documentary of some sorts, mm-hmm. because I've had your chocolates um, when you pull them out of the bag and I am obsessed with them. Thank you. Um, and so, like I've said to you, how can we get them in the States or what's the next process so that we can actually have them here? What do we need to do to, to help with that process? I mean, uh, at the moment, I'm doing the analysis, trying to uh, determine whether it's production in Ghana, mm-hmm. but they're delicate, you know, truffles are delicate to ship. So um, the other option would be um, having them here, uh, be sending the chocolate here to then have them produced here. So I'm doing that analysis and then looking to raise funds. That's kind of where I am right now with that. Um, the feedback I've gotten from people has been really positive and I do want to share them with the rest of the world. Um, I think that um, the other aspect of the chocolate besides the added value to a cocoa product is also getting a chance to share some of the flavors and, um, and the spices from the continent with the rest of the world. So I, um, I have a collection which has teas and tisans. I have a collection that is fruits including um, one, um, it's called African star fruit and locally in Ghana we call it alasa. And um, it's super tart. It's kind of got that passion fruit tartness to it. And it's a fruit that doesn't exist in uh, the United States. And in very, I mean, 
it's a limited reach in terms of people who've actually ever tasted it. Right. Um, there's a spice that I have in one of the truffles um, that doesn't even have an English name. So wow. it's, it's getting, a, um, I guess, it's letting people understand that there's actually something that, to know what they don't know That's and right. to experience something that they don't know. Um, and it's sad, but I think Africa and most of the flavors we have in the continent um, are sort of the last frontier uh, mm-hmm. in terms of um, experiences and, and information and knowledge to share. Mm-hmm. Because you, you also were one of the founding members of the restaurant. We did a pop-up in Senegal, yeah. Yes. Uh, called Trio Toke. Mm-hmm. Um, there were three of us, and it started off as actually initially a cooking club mm-hmm. um, with colleagues um, because... We always had this conversation that kind of bothered me, and I was like, we're in these countries as, you know, at the time I was an expat living in different countries um, and eating from grocery stores, which had imported food. And I really said, let's actually challenge ourselves and pick items that are locally available, that are in season, and let's get creative with it and see what we can actually create with what we have rather than, in many ways, a lot of my travels were like, what don't we have? And it was like, let's focus on what we do have and create something with that. And we ran it for three years. And, um, well, we did the, 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 um, the cooking club first. And um, there were two other um, who were the, the initial three that kind of ended up obsessing about our recipes sort of every month. <laughs> and uh, ended up um, sort of getting closer around food. And then we eventually decided to do the Pro Chef program at the Culinary Institute of America. And uh, when we came back, we were like, let's, let's keep this going. And um, mind you, all three of us actually had full-time jobs um, in regional offices or we were traveling minimum 50% of the time around West and Central Africa. And the Culinary School of America, how long was that course? Because you didn't study It's a one-month. You so you did one-month hardcore. Yeah. Self-taught. And then, and then we did a one-week exam that was uh, Intense, not, right? not easy. <laughs> so one month, one-week exam. Yeah. And the rest is self-taught. Yeah. And then from that... Your PR game is ignorant. You're going to be cooking. <laughs> it's like dumb. You're going to be cooking for next week, J- June 8th. Yeah, we're, I'm doing a dinner at the James Beard House uh, for the Iconoclast, the dinner experience. That's major. And yeah. then you just wrapped up. Um, I finished doing a couple of uh, keynote speeches. One was for ter- Terroir Talks in Toronto. And also um, as a keynote for the Color Institute of America, they have a uh, plant forward um, summit. So I think the, the, one, of the, one of the lessons I've learned is that actually the African continent is the most plant-forward continent in, in the world, which means that we're eating a lot of um, our protein from non-animal sources. So in terms of sharing recipes, ideas, concepts, we, we kind of got a lot going on. <laughs> right, right. I mean, so. I, I learned for myself as an adult, I stopped eating bananas or mm. I just didn't eat them for some strange okay. reason for many, many, many years. And I was in Cameroon uh-huh. working with an artist at the time, and I remember going out for, or coming down for breakfast, yeah. and they brought in these, the most amazing bananas I'd ever had in my life, and tomatoes and avocados. Yeah. And they were so sweet from custard. They taste like custard because they've been <laughs> grown from this amazing and it's soul, a, yeah. soil. Yeah, and we have so many varieties of bananas, and when you can actually eat things when um, they're, you know, eat, eat 
we say local not just because of the economy, but we say local because it tastes better. That's right. Because when a fruit ripens on the tree right. or is almost ripened from the tree, it's much better than the way when it travels. It's got to be picked when it's still... Right, and it's not sprayed up because we like exactly. to spray things around well, here, Well, right? if you In think about it, the logistics has to be really managed. If you're picking something you know it can't be super ripe. Right. So you've got to pick it before it's Early. actually ripe. You've got to bring it in, and then you've got to find a way to ripen it so that it's get ripened closer to source of where it's going to be sold. Wow. Right? So that's right. why things don't taste... I mean, if you're going to eat a mango... Like, for example, I don't eat pineapples when I'm not in Ghana. Right. We have a, an amazing pineapple variety called the sugar loaf. It's kind of pointy on the top. It's not, like, kind of oval. It's, it's got this point, so it's like a little triangle when you look at it. Um, and That's they're called. It's grown. Yeah, I mean, it's it's naturally that shape. It's it's not like a triangle, but it's like, it's yeah. kind of shaped in that way. Um, and they're called sugar loaf because they literally taste like loaves of sugar. Um, they are so sweet that we actually can't export them because they ferment too quickly. Wow! So if you're not there, <laughs> you well, miss the party. I really have to get there for that party. <laughs> yeah. Is yeah. any of is that is any of that in the chocolate that particular um, fruit? We have um, one with pineapple in it. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Wow. No, I mean, I, I think that um, we've gotten into a place in the world and, and modern life that we expect to have everything when we want it right. and how we want it, and it should be delivered to me tomorrow. And I think there's also something beautiful about experiencing something where it is and knowing that, well, it's actually here. You have to come and get it. That's right. Um, so, yeah. So And you can only have it <laughs> at this time, right? Yeah. Because that's what makes it special. I mean, I think that's, that's right. when you think about special occasions, even food. There are certain dishes that we have that are linked to ceremonies or occasions. Right. Um, and sometimes it's there for a reason, but it makes it, when you have it, that much more special. Well, it's those specific dishes that you're actually bringing back to magnetic experience, right? Because yeah. a lot of those dishes I've read um, from, from researching you is that there's this slow process of cooking them. Like, that's the trouble with these dishes. And it's interesting because it's, it's very relative to what I think about with, with my grandparents and the way that I was raised, mm -hmm. right? Green used to take six hours yeah. and like all these things. And it was like you were, you were waiting for yeah. this meal to come about. Yeah. And it might take a day to pull it together. Whereas now you're absolutely right. People don't have time for that. Yeah. People now are like putting on their wigs and like putting on their <laughs> lashes and like snatching up their, you know, their yeah. brown rice and they're out, you yeah. know? I mean, I've, I've, it's been really in a way good having conversation globally because I've realized that we in in Ghana and Africa widely we are at the cusp of actually um, moving from this traditional to modern mm. and um, when I talk to a lot of people it's um, from different countries I was in Turkey um, last November and we had a conversation and a lot of people were like well that's how our food was too but we don't eat that anymore so for example something as simple as moving from houses um, independent houses to moving to apartments there are certain dishes like traditionally fufu which you pound a lot of people will not pound fufu in their apartments, even though... No, I mean... <laughs> right. No, I, You're tearing up my floors. <laughs> no, but I mean, for example, one of my friends, she's wow. an architect, one of my collaborators, and she's an architect, and there are buildings that have been built especially to take the pounding pressure that are were built in Ghana. But people don't actually feel comfortable. I don't know if it's because, you know, your neighbors are going to call you out for, Being you know, waking up the whole are, neighborhood. Right. But, but the thing is... Um, there's a certain element where I think people also want to do it outside. So, like, you will see people on a Sunday outside pounding fufu. They'll be like, everybody's pounding to go up to their apartments. Wow. Um, their fufu. But, I mean, they're, they're, the food takes time. And um, with our 
modern day lifestyle, the question is, is how do we maintain some of those elements, maintain some of those dishes, maintain some of those foods um, within our existing lifestyle? Some of it goes to agro-processing, right? Um, and some of it goes to um, sort of thinking through maybe some of these dishes need to be maybe in a restaurant because we know that, right. you know, chefs and restaurants, they're there to also provide these things. So like for me, I, I can take the time to do some of these things because it is a restaurant and I have a team and, a, and staff to do that. Um, right. But until we can figure out the agro-processing and the um, kitchens mm-hmm. uh, that need to be fitted to accept our food, then it actually becomes something that we can't eat. So very simply, um, in, in Ghana and in many parts of Africa, we are the last consumers. What do I mean by that? It means that if, um, I don't know, X um, kitchen company that's making stoves is making the stove for the American market and the European market. And then there might be some that go to the Middle East and Asia that will be used there. And then we're like the last, no one's even thought about designing for us, but our wow. food is entirely different, right? So the question is, is what needs to be done for a modern kitchen to enable us to be able to cook our food without losing our heritage? So if you're pounding fufu, what equipment is there in any modern kitchen that well, allows us to, out. yeah. Got you. That so, makes complete sense. Yeah. So, so people are, like, for example, people I know that live in apartments, they don't eat traditionally Monday through Friday. They'll wait till Saturday and Sunday when they're going to go to see their parents. Right. Or they're going out of town. Or they, um, you know, they have an invitation with somebody who has a house. Right. Um, so they pull out their pound. Exactly. So then, you know, that means that the people growing cassava and yam and stuff in the modern context don't have a market unless we can figure out how to agro-process those products to allow the yam farmers and everybody else to are be able to cook. Are we almost there? Um, no, there, there are, there's like, there's a fufu machine, actually. Someone, um, I, I haven't tested it myself, but there exists a machine. I think there's some of the challenges around um, behavior change. So people are like, oh, it tastes better the traditional way, right? So I'm sure the grandmother's pesto from uh, Italy that was done by mortar and pestle <laughs> is supposed to be better than the one that was made in a food processor, right? right, right so we're right. going through that moment now where it's like, okay, so it's pounded. It's not pounded, but it's done in a machine that's supposed to uh, simulate those those um, wow. those actions. How are we gonna, are we going to be okay with it? There's fufu that comes in a pack. Um, I've heard that the ones that are made in the U.S. have are higher quality, so taste better than the ones that are made locally. So there's also this whole thing of like, oh, the market can't pay for it, so we're going to do the higher quality stuff outside. So you know, there's there's all these different right. variables that come into play. But, but when you start moving outside, I find a lot of times there's more preservative, much more sodium and things like that when yeah. you start moving into that but direction. That, for me, it's it's really about the conversation of we want to eat more yam. So for example, now in Ghana. Um, as of last year, there was, I think, about 1.1 billion U.S. dollars was spent on the importation of rice. Okay? Mm-hmm. So if Ghana is spending 1.1 billion dollars on rice, importation of rice from Asia, what would it look like if that 1.1 billion was spent on irrigation for on the now. local... No, because we have rice. Right, we have local right, rice, right? right. So, so irrigation of local rice um, um, growing areas would... Uh, the infrastructure roads um, to get the rice off, the processing to make sure that the local rice doesn't have a lot of stones in it. Um, And then at the same time, if you think about it, we can't eat one crop. 
we need to have more biodiversity. If we're going to try to feed as many people as possible, we need to eat as many things as possible. Right. So we need yam, we need plantain, we need um, millet, we need sorghum, we need other crops that are part of our calorie intake. So globally, not, not Africa, but globally, I think something like 65 or 70% of all of our calories come from four crops. Wow. So what happens when those four, you know, like you got, made right, right. right, and some of them are really not adapted to climate change, right? So what are we going to eat then? Or what happens if any of these, um, we get some sort of killer virus in That's some right. of these strains, right? So right. the four crops are, well, what, let me ask you to guess them. What do you think they are? Rice. Yeah. Yam. No, no, globally. Ooh. Rice, wheat, corn, and soy. That is sixty-five to seventy percent of human That's calories. Right. Soy and corn. And some of it is also, and some of those calorie intakes is actually um, via, um, for example, animal feed. So that's that's where our calories are coming from. So it, actually, if we start eating other things, we can feed more people too. Right. If we start if we start if we stop wasting, we're right. going to feed more people. If we work on our you know post harvest loss, we can feed more people. If we, you know, so so there's a, there's a lot of different elements that come together. But in terms of like for me, how do we feed Ghana? How right. do we make sure Ghana, who's now a net importer of food product? can actually feed itself we need to think wider beyond what we currently are consuming in the urban areas and look to our past and say what can we grow what can the the what can our soil sustain what's going to be easy for us to manage with climate change and then actually say you know our ancestors were eating these things in the lean season which means okay we didn't have a lot of water therefore we know they're climate climate smart uh, crops right right so let's make sure those have more recipes let's make sure more restaurants are using them let's make sure hospitals schools uh prisons um you know all the 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 industrial consumers are using those products because that's going to create supply and demand so that we actually are putting hand money back into the hands of the farmers so let's talk about next step solutions mm -hmm. who what what do you see as a way to move this forward? Is it a partnership with a specific corporation? Is it someone writing you a big fat check? Is I'll it take the money now. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it, I think there's going to have to be a web of partners because I think right now when uh, we talk about food in Africa, the, the conversation is big ag, mm -hmm. which we know hasn't worked in a lot of other places. Mm -hmm. um, but it's really about, well, let's not call it big ag, but it's, it's about production. Right. And I think we need to go beyond just production to think about the nuances of consumer habits as well. Got it. Um, but I think it's, it's, there's, food is so deep that there's so many levels. Um, sometimes it's about what we ate um, or what we're supposed to eat or not supposed to eat. So there are all these cultural labels on things, right? So then after that, we've got um, issues of access and pricing and you know those kind of questions that come in. So there's so many people involved in food on so many levels that it's definitely not something I can do alone or anyone can do alone. And it's right. only through working together to explore and, um, and innovate around, around what we actually have and what we can work with. Wow. Well, I am inspired. I definitely want to help. We'll be having more conversations after this, of course, yeah. because I'm your biggest fan. Thank you. Um, and I'm excited to see what you will. Yeah, I'll be looking way across with binoculars because yeah. the tickets are like $10,000 to taste whatever you're going to be preparing next week. What, what, <laughs> oh, <laughs> then, stop it. I mean, what, can, you, can you share with um, the audience my, what you're going to put? I'm going to be making a, 
a duck yasa, actually. Yeah. Um, Talk about that. Yeah. So it's uh, uh, yasa is a um, is a dish that is from Senegal, Senegambia. Let's call it. Um, and it's um, onions. It's got lemon or lime. It's, it's it's got a lot of acidity to it. It's got the caramelization of the onions that have been slow cooked. Um, often, when I was uh, growing up, we lived in the Gambia for a year. We used to have it with. Uh, pigeon, which was delicious. Wow, um, like, an, like pigeon pigeon. Yeah. Like those tough hoes out of Like the I said, we need to expand our definition of food. <laughs> I mean, I've had a little pigeon over in Beijing a tiny okay. bit, you know. I, yeah. They didn't roll it out first. and they, You know what I mean? Like, you know, it was yeah. floating in something. So, I mean, um, I had it when I was a child with pigeon. Um, um, but it was prepared was, deliciously, I'm sure. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, and you'll get it a lot with chicken. You'll get it with fish. Mm. Um, so, you know, you can play around with it, but I think for me, it's, it's this beautiful, like, um, sauce that's made with onions and lemon um, that I'm using. Um, so I'm preparing it with duck breast, and um, it's going to be served with fonio, which is uh, one of these new, well, not really new, it's, it's an old, old grain um, that comes from uh, Africa. But, um, and uh, we're going to be serving it with fonio. Um, there's going to be a little bit of jackfruit in there as well, um, mango, um, a little bit of a wild hibiscus um, for sweetness in there, um, and some greens for earthiness. For how many people? Um, the dinner itself is for about 50 people, and um, we're also going to be doing, uh, there's some pre-event cocktails that will be happening, and so I'll be preparing, um, using the legs of the duck, um, preparing a... <laughs> Um, a bastilla, which comes from Morocco. It's like from Northern Africa. It's a beautiful, sweet, savory dish. It's like a pastry. Um, and the inside has got uh, almonds and um, it's going to have the duck and it's going to have um, some um, cinnamon, some cardamom, just a lot of beautiful flavors from North Africa. Uh, and I'm also going to be pairing peri-peri shrimp. Um, that's uh, going to be served with rum-infused plantain puree. And how are you selected for this? Um, every year they identify uh, different chefs of color that they want to highlight and um, an honor. Um, and They're yeah. honoring you? <laughs> yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, Selassie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, my God. And thank you for sharing that menu. Like, now I got to, like, save my money and, like, look out the window. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Now we get to go eat because yes. we're at Kali Home. So we're going for fish tacos. Thank you. Mr. Welfare was created by Rasan Toure Gandhi with co-hosts Sherry B. Bronfman and Ronald Sisinski. Thank you for your time and ear.